Okay, James chapter 2 can be found on page 1213 of the Church Bibles. James chapter 2, starting at the first verse. My brothers and sisters, believers in our, Lord, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourselves, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the law, the whole law, and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Faith and deeds. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him 
as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Lord, open our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say to us this morning and to respond in faith. Amen. Some of you may know that I once worked in the theatre selling tickets in the box office. It was a wonderful experience, and I really enjoyed working there. But one thing I never really liked about the theatre was that it was a place where everyone was not equal. It was a place where wealth and status meant that some people felt entitled to be treated better than others. I've heard variations on that old cliché, don't you know who I am, many times when I worked in the theatre. I'd often encounter situations like this. Someone rich or famous, or both, turns up at the theatre one evening to see a popular show. The moment he walks in, the theatre's artistic director rushes to greet him with the obligatory air kisses, abandoning whoever she's been talking to previously, who were presumably deemed less important. She very quickly thrusts a drink in his hand, which, of course, is on the house. The gentleman explains that he has unexpectedly found himself with a free evening and simply had to come and see this wonderful show that he's heard so much about. Of course, he hasn't bought a ticket, but he hopes that we can find him something. Now, the show is sold out, and there's a queue of people already waiting for any spare tickets that may become available. My inclination is to say I'm very sorry, but he'll have to join the queue. But the artistic director intervenes on his behalf. Darling, she says to me, I'm sure we can find this lovely gentleman a seat, can't we? It's a rhetorical question. She says it sweetly, but with just enough edge to know that what she really means is you will find this gentleman a seat if you value your job, and it had better be a good one. Fortunately, there are various tricks and sleights of hand you learn working on the box office, which mean that despite the fact that the show is sold out, I'm able to find a seat in a good position and maintain my reputation as a worker of miracles. Well, that's theatre for you. But you wouldn't find that sort of thing happening in church, would you? Would you? Believe it or not, there's probably some churches where things are not unlike that do happen. Fortunately, we have enough seats here for everyone this morning. And I've never thought of any of the seats at St. Michael's being any better than any other. So hopefully, you all know that it doesn't matter where you're sat, we're all equally important. It was obviously a problem in the early church, though, which is why James warns against it in the second chapter of his letter, which we read this morning. But before we dismiss it as just another of those bits of the Bible that doesn't apply to us, because we don't do that, it's worth remembering that James, like other writers in the Bible, may be trying to make a more general point, as well as applying it to a specific example. We may not be a church where the rich get the best seats, while the poor are made to stand or sit on the floor, but we do live in a world where the rich and powerful are flattered and respected, while the poor and needy are dismissed and ignored. Are we sometimes guilty of that, I wonder? 
Are we sometimes more willing to give our time and attention to those who appear wealthy and respectable than we are to those who are poor and destitute? Do we sometimes pay particular attention to the famous and powerful? And why might that be? Is it because we assume people get what they deserve, so the rich and prosperous must be better than the poor and needy? Or is it because we think of our own personal interactions in terms of what we might get out of them for ourselves? If we show favour to the rich and powerful, they might show favour to us. But what have we to gain by showing favour to those who have nothing to give in return? Either way, James uses the teaching and example of Jesus to challenge this behaviour. Did Jesus favour the rich and powerful over the poor? The servant king, born not in a palace, but placed in a manger because there was no room at the inn. Visited on the night of his birth, not by priests or kings, but by a ragtag bunch of shepherds, whose disciples were fishermen and tax collectors, the outcasts and the underclasses. James reminds us that it is often those who were poor in the eyes of the world who were rich in faith. And often it was the rich and powerful who challenged and persecuted the Christians, because they were the ones with the most to lose. Accepting Jesus and living as Jesus had taught them for the rich and powerful meant surrendering their power and wealth and laying it at the feet of Jesus. What's more, the second great commandment Jesus gave after loving God was to love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus quoted this from Leviticus, one of the books of the law from the Old Testament. James argues that if you treat the poor less favourably than others, you're breaking God's law. That makes you a sinner. James clearly takes this very seriously. And he goes on to anticipate some of the arguments people might use to get out of this. The first is this. Okay, maybe I sometimes get things a bit wrong. But it's only a bit wrong. I do a lot of things right. So the odd mistake here and there doesn't really matter. I think we can all be a bit prone to deceiving ourselves that of all the laws in the Bible, the ones God is mainly concerned about are the ones we find it easy to keep. James is having none of it. And I like the way he illustrates his point. He picks two of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery, and you shall not commit murder. James points out that if you commit murder, it doesn't really help to say, well, at least I haven't committed adultery. You're still a lawbreaker. I wonder if there isn't a bit of cutting satirical humour in that point. Because I think most people will say, yes, no, murder is definitely wrong. I wonder if that point would have worked so well the other way around, though. Particularly given that Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Hmm, yes. You shall not commit murder. That's the tricky one, isn't it? But the point is, you can't break the law just a little bit. It's like those big windows on trains. I don't know if you've ever seen, next to those big windows, there's a little panel that conceals a tiny hammer, which is for use in case of emergency. If you need to escape the train carriage in an emergency and you can't use the doors, the instructions are to take the little hammer and strike the window firmly near the corner. It's a big window and a tiny hammer. You only break a tiny little bit of the window, right in the corner. But it's enough for the whole thing to fall apart. 
It's a bit like that with God's law. Just a little break in one place and the whole thing is broken. You can't break God's law just a bit. Either it's broken or it's not. Sounds a bit drastic, doesn't it? We're all doomed then. Well, fortunately, the message of the gospel is that it's by God's grace that we are saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Sound familiar? And that's where the second argument comes in. If we're saved by our faith and not by our deeds, then surely it doesn't matter if we break God's law. We're still saved as long as we believe, right? Well, that leads us on to the second part of this morning's reading. This is arguably the central teaching of James's letter. And it's also the part that's caused a lot of debate and controversy. Because some see it as contradicting the message of salvation through faith alone that runs through the rest of the New Testament. Take Romans chapter 3, verse 28, for example, which says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. Now compare that with verse 24 of the passage we read today, where James says, You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. So one book of the New Testament seems to say that it's only through faith that we are justified or deemed righteous, while another book says that we can only be considered righteous by what we do and not by faith alone. Why do these two books seemingly say opposite things? And which one is right? Perhaps it would help to consider who wrote these different books. Romans was written by Paul, who was an important leader in the early church. The story of his conversion to Christianity and subsequent missionary journeys takes up a lot of the book of Acts. And a number of the subsequent books of the New Testament are letters written by Paul to different churches. As Jody explained last week, we don't know much for certain about the writer of James. This is the only letter written by him in the Bible. James was a common name at the time, but many scholars think that this particular James was the brother of Jesus, who was also an important leader in the early church. So both appear to be people who should know what they're talking about. Paul backs up his point by quoting from Genesis in the Old Testament. What does scripture say, he asks? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But James uses the same scripture to support his point. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Actually, the point is, they're both right. If you read what James is saying carefully, you'll see that he's not contradicting Paul at all. Paul's point is that we cannot be saved by blind obedience to the law. We are saved by faith, and faith alone. Keeping the law won't save you. And if you've broken the law, that in itself won't condemn you either. But James is making a different point. It was a point that was obviously relevant to those he was writing to, and one that I think is still very relevant today. James says, Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Again, I wonder if this isn't some cutting satirical humour in this point. All the more effective because I don't know about you, but I can see myself in that example sometimes. It's easy to become like that as Christians. 
And the point James is trying to make is that he's not denying that we're made righteous by faith and faith alone. He's describing the kind of faith we need to have. He is saying that it's not enough simply to accept the existence of God. Believing that God exists is a kind of faith. But it's not the kind of faith that will save us. Even the enemies of God believe that God exists. But the kind of faith that saves us, that makes us righteous, is the kind that transforms us. And if we've been truly transformed by our faith, how could that not be apparent from our actions? James is not contradicting Paul when he says that our actions matter. Paul doesn't say that our actions don't matter. Paul only says that our actions don't make us righteous. Only faith can do that. James doesn't contradict this either. But James is making the point that the faith that saves is a faith that transforms. It's an active faith. And so if we have that kind of faith, it must inevitably show in our actions. It will naturally spill out into our lives. And if it doesn't, how can we claim to have that kind of faith at all? It's easy at this point to start feeling guilty about all the good things we failed to do. But we shouldn't. Remember, we are made righteous by faith and faith alone. Whoever we are, whatever we've done, God loves us. Christ died to save us from our sins. So it no longer matters what we've done. But it does matter what we do. If we truly have faith in God's promises, that faith must be shown in our actions. That's not to say we won't make mistakes. Just that God's presence in us should be revealed in our lives. And as God has shown his love and mercy to us, so we should show love and mercy to others. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen.